Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network today. And I'm talking to uh, James White uh, with regard to his new book on the uh, uh, history of uh, Russian religion. It's called Unity and Faith, and it's about uh, the interplay between Russian orthodoxy and old belief and a uh, kind of middle way that emerged uh, called the uh, Yudinoveria. So I uh, thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. White. No, thank you very much for having me, Aaron. Yep. Uh, so uh, could you start off by telling us a bit uh, about yourself, if you could, uh, uh, and where you went to school and how you got in, interested in Russian history, kind of the background on how you came to write this particular book? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, rich- I did my, B- uh, my MA and BA at the University of Birmingham in the uh, United Kingdom, and then I went to Florence to the U- uh, European University Institute to do my PhD. Um, when this is when um, I came up with the idea for the book, but uh, the, the the book is based on my uh, my PhD thesis. Um, I think it was because largely I was moving away from intellectual history at the time and wanting to do something more. I don't know something more connected with social history, and I found that religious history was a sort of perfect melding between the two, between looking at sort of theological ideas and their connections between religious behaviors. And I was also very interested in this notion of religious toleration in the Russian Empire. And I found that Yudinovilia is a perfect case study for this because it's um, um, a lot of extremely long case study of the Russian church trying to incorporate ideas uh, surrounding religious toleration and not quite succeeding. Um, and so just also conclude, uh, at the moment, I'm a re- uh, senior research fellow at Ural Federal University and a research fellow at the University of Tartu. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think that uh, because this is a subject uh, that not too many people uh, know very much about ahead of time, uh, I'm thinking that the best thing we could do is go back and talk a bit about the schism in between orthodoxy and old belief. Uh, So could you provide listeners with some broad background context to that? Absolutely. So in the the middle of the 17th century, so in the 1650s, uh, Patriarch Nikon essentially launched a series of ritual reforms. Uh, possibly the most um, sim- symbolic of these was the changing of the uh, number of fingers used to make the sign of the cross, along with the spelling of Jesus, the direction around which people processed uh, around the church, and so on and so forth. Uh, these ritual reforms provoked a great deal of resistance among the lay believer, the laity, and also the pr- um, large portions of the priesthood. However, Nikon and then Patriar, uh, then Tsar Alexei, continued, persisted with the reforms in the in the Moscow Council of 1666. The old believers and their rituals were cast out of the church. Anathema was declared on them, and from that point onwards, they became regarded as schismatics. So they were hunted and persecuted by the church and the state in the initial in the initial period of their existence in the, in the, for the rest of the 17th century. And then in the, for the rest of the imperial period, the government policy tended to swing wildly between periods of toleration and periods of persecution. Um, and there were various efforts to try and resolve this schism, both through, as I've mentioned, police tactics, police um, duties, but also through missionary outreach. And Yidinivilia is an example of a sustained missionary project. So, uh, 
what was again kind of thinking about the broad background here um like what was the what was the basic reasons behind those reforms to begin with? I mean, what what was it that caused uh, Nick Khan and others to say, you know, we should change the number of fingers and and so on? Sure. Um, to a large extent, there there was a um, a great deal of reformist zeal in the 1640s in the Russian Orthodox Church. Many had observed the crises earlier in the century, the crises that continued in Russia in that, at that point. And came to the resolution as well, you know, God, for some reason, was abandoning Russia and decided to try and find the reason for this, to try and reform not only liturgical behavior, but also morality and so on and so forth, increase levels of piety. And one conclusion that Nikon came to was he compared the rituals of the Russian church with those in being used apparently, allegedly, by the Greek church. And, he conc- and they concluded that the uh, Greek rituals were older, which meant that the Russian ritual, Russian ritual uh, corruption had entered into the Russian rituals. So therefore, it was decided that in order to improve um, behavior, improve, uh, improve piety and so on and so forth, there was a need to restore these anti- antique Greek rituals. Of course, this connects with the way orthodoxy typically portrays itself as... Um, and all uh, the most ancient Christian faith, a Christian faith that's been unblemished by change since the uh, ecumenical councils in the early centuries of Christianity. So, what was um, what were the arguments then of the old believers? Uh, you know that that rejected those things. Like what what form did those arguments take in the you know kind of the immediate period of change? Well, for many, there was a great deal of xenophobia behind it. So the idea that um, the Greek rituals were somehow uh, were foreign and not, you know, not Russian, therefore should be rejected out of hand. For many to be told that they're uh, not only they, but their fathers, their grandfathers, their great grandfathers, and so on and so forth had been performing the rites, not only simply in the wrong way, but in a way that potentially contaminated them with sin, uh, was of course an argument that didn't please many. Um, of, uh, this was also combined with a sort of uh, time of great social uh, uh, economic upheaval, failed uh, crop failures, a, pe- a long a long period of war with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, all of this combined together to form a, um, a potent reason for resistance to religious authority in the Russian Empire, as it, well in the in the Muscovite state rather. Um, and so this all came together into the concoction which became old belief. Is uh, just curious then, because um, obviously in the in the mid sixteen hundreds, there's a good bit of religious conflict over what's small or orthodox and what isn't in mm-hmm. in Western Europe as well. Yes. Uh, you know the you know the Thirty Years' War has just concluded and and so on. So is any I mean is there any sense that the the kind of heightened religious tension in Western Europe is is this connected with that in any way or would you see these really as kind of separate phenomena? No, I think there's definitely a connection of one of the uh, with why the Russian Orthodox Church chose this juncture to reform um, in the nearby Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Catholic Counter Reformation was particularly strong, um, was under full way. Um, and what one of the things they had done in the fifty in the fifteen uh, eighties and fifteen nineties was to create the Unia, the uh, Uniate Church, or otherwise known as the Greek Catholic Church, 
which was to offer the um, Orthodox believers membership of the Catholic Church as um, in, in such a way that they'd be allowed to maintain their Orthodox liturgical behavior. So this um, spirit of sort of trying to reform the Orthodox Church was very much generated by a need to compete with the Catholic Church in Poland and with their new sort of unit experiment, which was spreading very strongly at the time in the um, territories which later became Ukraine. Well, I, I suppose in context of that, then uh, I suppose you might still be, you know, talking about uh, during the time of Troubles when the theory was that, uh, you know, the, the, the first false Dimitri was a kind of uh, Polish Catholic tool. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I suppose those kinds of arguments might have still been around by the mid-1600s, huh? Oh, certainly. I think really um, this, is an, this is definitely an, uh, um, an era of, heightened confessional and international tension with the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It's, remember, this in the 1650s, who precisely is uh, the Muscovite state going to war with, but, you know, Poland-Lithuania. Well, yeah, I, I hadn't, hadn't quite thought about it in that way before, but, yeah, that, that makes sense. So uh, now that we've kind of, you know, looked at some broad background of the schism that happened. I think now we're kind of in a position to actually uh, talk about what your book is actually about. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, I think probably it'd be good for you to just talk about, so what was the Adina Veria? What were the, the forces behind its creation and implementation? And, you know, like what, what problem is it trying to solve, I guess? Sure. Well, I think really we need to look at the roots of the uh, issue which emerged in the 1760s when first Peter III and then um, his, his wife Catherine II came to power. And they were both figures were moved by um, a spirit of toleration, both out, well, for in Catherine's case, both out of a, um, I don't know, a sort of a um, uh, adoption of, of the ideals of the French and German Enlightenments but also for pragmatic reasons, a need to bring all believers out of hiding, out of exile, and to settle them in sort of Russia's uh, expanding empire, especially as it moved southwards uh, towards the Crimea and, and, and into what is uh, what was then called uh, Nova Russia. Um, and so, Catherine really took sort of the um, the um, Put the brakes on persecution of the old believers and, ex and extended them to extended the, to them a great deal of toleration. So they were they were able to come out of hiding significantly for the first time without any real threat of persecution from the state. This allowed them to found, for instance, their extremely large centers in Moscow, the Plyabozhenskaya Cemetery and the Lagoshkaya Cemetery. Um, this forced the Russian Orthodox Church to find a way of translating Catherine's policy into theological terms. And the major figure here was, uh, was uh, Platon Levshin, or Lovshin, I'm sorry, Platon Lovshin, uh, who was uh, initially the court preacher for Catherine and the tutor for her son and later Tsar Paul, and then became the uh, Metropolitan of Moscow, so the second highest ranking member of the Orthodox Church. And in the 1760s, he wrote a widely published pamphlet, widely distributed pamphlet, wherein he, he essentially said, well, one way we could end this schism is by allowing the old believers to have their own rights within the Orthodox Church. There shouldn't be division over ritual questions, because ritual questions, in his view, are a matter of secondary importance. Peace within the church is more important. 
So this was the sort of um, intellectual groundwork. However, when Metropolitan Platon was very um, skeptical when it came to actually realizing this uh, new idea in practice throughout the 1780s, there were attempts to create such parishes um, where all believers would be allowed to practice with their old liturgical rite within the Orthodox Church, um, so long as they swore loyalty to the synodal order and to the emperor. Um, however, Platon was very um, sceptical towards this and was really only moved by the fact that Catherine and uh, Grigory Potemkin uh, intervened strongly on behalf of these uh, new old believer pro- uh, new old believer parishes, uh, old believer parishes within the Orthodox Church. Um, at least for a while, at least while it captured their attention. Uh, he continued to be resistant in, into the 1790s, into the reign of Paul I. But Paul I's interest in um, the, trying to settle the old believer question was much more persistent than his mother's had been. And basically, he pushed through Yetinivilia onto the church. Uh, Metropolitan Platon was essentially forced to come up with a settlement, uh, a series of conditions which would uh, create the structure to allow these old believers to exist within the Orthodox Church while practicing their old rites. And it's this settlement which is called Yidinaderia, so the united faith or unity in faith, basically meaning a wing of the Orthodox Church where old believers uh, were allowed to practice their old um, their old rites, their pre-Niconian rites, in union, in union with the Orthodox Church. So what uh, what was uh, Paul the first main motivation then for for uh, you know pushing this through? And this is a really interesting question, and to be honest, it's it's still quite difficult to answer in any clear depth. I mean, unfortunately, both Russian, neither Russians nor Western historians have done a great deal of work on the uh, confessional policies of Paul. He seems to have been very much motivated, um, as far as we can tell at the moment by the same sort of uh, ideas that um, prompted his mother to intervene heavily in the old, belie- in old believer affairs. So the idea of trying to use, to bring them out of uh, hiding, to use them as, and to use them as settlers in, uh, un- in um, un- less than populated regions of the South. <laughs> yeah, Paul I has never struck me as the, the kind of person who would be interested in, you know, abstruse theology or anything so I, I find that kind of interesting that that it's during his reign that that really happens yeah i think i mean i would i would agree completely i don't think um it's it is quite surprising that this happened in the reign of paul because this is not the kind of policy he's usually associated with and certainly i don't think he was much one for, uh for abstract uh theologizing but um this was really seen as a way sort of to avoid, uh, Yedin was seen as a kind of way to avoid a contradiction. At the t- uh, under Catherine and continuing under Paul and, her, and, uh, and Alexander, what the Russian state had done for many other confessions, for instance, the most particularly the, uh, the Muslims, was to essentially create a sort of institution which, uh, and to legalize, if you like, toleration to basically offer them to, uh, to, uh, to extend some toleration through a legislative and institutional framework. However, this couldn't really be done in the case of old belief because old belief was quite predicated on its opposition to the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church was, of course, the uh, 
ideological wing, if you like, uh, of the Russian state. So Yedinaviria was a way to try and bring, institutionalize a tolerant attitude to your belief within the church without actually ever having to uh, completely legalize it, completely tolerate it. So uh, what, um, could you talk for a bit then about what forms uh, this toleration was supposed to take in practice? Like, you know, intermarriage, uh, you know, how does the, uh, how do these rituals actually look uh, and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, the sort of um, foundational document for Yedinaviria was the rule, the so-called rules of Metropolitan Platon, which really established the kind of um, administrative, uh, not the administrative structure, but also the uh, liturgical, um, fra- their liturgical framework and their relationship with the broader Orthodox Church. And there were numerous uh, ways in which these um, these rules both try to um, integrate the Yidinaversi, uh, as, as the members of Yidinaviria were called, to integrate them uh, more strongly into the Orthodox Confession, while also keeping them at arm's length. So Platon really seems to have believed that once they joined the Orthodox Church, over time it would be best if they eventually abandoned their old rituals. And there seems to have been a, um, a, a, a direction in the rules which was aimed at this kind of a notion of ritual assimilation to bring the uh, Yidinavir, so that the uh, members of Yidinavir would eventually lose their old rituals and become distinct to nothing from the rest of the Orthodox Church. However, at the same time, there were various um, safeguards, if you like, that Platon instituted to sort of prevent these old believer converts from potentially, you know, becoming uh, crypto, uh, being a fifth column within the Orthodox, within the church, uh, using their new position to sort of secretly proselytize among the Orthodox. So, for instance, Orthodox people, people who are members of the Orthodox church, could not convert to Yedinaviria. They could not join Yedinaviria, even though both were both things were technically part of the Orthodox church. If you were Orthodox, you could not join Yedinaviria. Um, this also was the, the case of if you married, you could ma- you could intermarry with an uh, there could be intermarriage between an Orthodox and a Yedin, Yedin, uh, um, someone from Yedinaviria, but um, that didn't mean that the Orthodox person became uh, a Yedinaveretz or a Yedinaverka. Um, and there were and there were various other things. So, for instance, a Yedinaviria priest was not allowed to attend uh, Orthodox. Uh, ritual needs, apart from in cases of extreme of extreme needs, so basically a case a case where people are at death's door. Um, these basically set the foundation for how Yedinaviria developed in practice on the ground for much of the, for most of the rest of the period, basically creating this interplay between integration and exclusion into uh, into the, uh, fra- into and from the Orthodox confession. Um, so, for instance. There were continued debates about whether, about what it meant to marry, uh, what a marriage meant between uh, someone from Yedinaviria and, and an Orthodox person. Could there be intermarriage between someone from Yedinaviria and Old Belief? Um, various answers were put up to this across the 19th century without really ever th- anything being too conclusive. Um, there were questions about, for instance, what faith should the tra- child be raised in? Again, 
This provoked a great deal of debate on many different occasions. Generally, the idea was that the child should be considered orthodox um, in all cases. So if one of the partners was orthodox, then they should uh, be raised within orthodoxy. There were questions of joint burial and so on and so forth. Um, but also from the sides of the, ed- the side from, of the Yiddinaverse themselves, many of them converted uh, to orthodox to Yiddinaveria under duress. And so many of them maintained their loyalty to um, their rather, I rather say, they maintained their view on the reformed ritual that the Orthodox used. So many, for instance, attempted to attain separate church buildings, separate chapels from the Orthodox, believing that somehow the Orthodox ritual would, the Nikonian ritual, would contaminate contaminate the buildings. Many of them tried to attain separate cross processions to have cross processions where they would uh, march separately because they they did not want to see the orthodox ritual and they regarded the orthodox ritual as a form of uh, potential religious contamination. In terms of how, really how sort of, I don't know, a typical Yidinevilia church service would have looked, well, very much similar to that of a priestly old believer service, so an old believer service where uh, they still maintained a belief in the necessity of the priesthood. So this would have been... Um, crossing with uh, two fingers rather than three, um, maintaining, uh, having icons that didn't represent saints from before the eight, from before, from after the schism. So they didn't really want to recognize saints made uh, by the Orthodox church after the, uh, after the schism. Um, there are record records of Yiddin Avertsi rejecting electric lighting in churches in the uh, early 20th century. Um, one particular thing that people did note was that the Yiddinaverts were very, very strict about the liturgy being performed to its full length. So it was noted that services were much longer and much more um, strict, uh, much more strict in terms of their accordance with the church regulations about how liturgies were to be performed. So there were far less abbreviations, um, attempts to reduce the uh, length of the service, and so on and so forth. And possibly one other thing that would be very notable would be the fact that the Yiddinavertsi maintained the very distinctive form uh, of old believer singing, so monophonic chanting, rather than the uh, orthodox uh, polyphonic singing, which was generally introduced um, in the late 17th century as a result of contact with uh, Roman Catholic Baroque singing from Europe. So you, uh, it occurs to me here that uh, it might be a good time uh, for you to talk a bit about the difference in between the old believer communities with priests and those without, and sure. and how how uh, you know how how you ended up as one or the other. Uh, sure. Just um, so at, by the end of the seventeenth century, basically there had been a division between old belief uh, between the priestly and priestless old believers. So the priestly old believers argued that the priesthood was still necessary, so that you still had, they still needed to have priests uh, to conduct the liturgical, uh, their liturgical life, to perform the sacraments, basically. And they generally obtained them through various ways. Most of them were sort of uh, priests who were fleeing from the Orthodox Church itself, the official Orthodox Church, for one reason or another. Often criminality was involved. Uh, they also had sort of training centers. But of course, their major problem was that no bishops joined the uh, old believers in the initial schism. 
So that meant they had no one who could uh, ordain new priests. So really their only sort of source was to turn towards the um, those priests who had already been ordained by Orthodox bishops, um, had fled the Orthodox Church, and then usually to conduct some kind of cleansing ritual or some sort of rebaptism. Uh, in some cases. The other, um, the other side of the coin is the priestless old believers who argued, well, the, um, the Nikonian rituals have marked the end of Christianity, not only in Russia, but in the world. The Antichrist is now abroad. Um, this means that we have to wait for the, uh, the second coming of Christ, for the reinstitution of the priesthood. So until that time comes, uh, we will rely on members of our own community to perform two of the um of the sacraments for two of the sacraments allowed by the uh that can be performed by lay people by the uh, by the gospels which are uh, baptism and penance um this of course meant that they were they couldn't have technically they couldn't have religious marriages because they were their uh they, their lay leaders were not allowed to perform such marriages um, some communities responded to this by essentially uh, abjuring sex and procreation, um, adopting people from the outside when it came uh, when it came time to sort of try and restore their numbers. While others came to a sort of arrangement to basically conduct civil weddings, and that's really, I say, I mean, the biggest distinction between the two would be, of course, in liturgical terms, would be the fact in a uh, a, a priestly old believer church, you would have, of course, a priest conducting the full service. Whereas in a priestless old believer church, you would have a member of the lay community who would do this, and it sometimes could be a woman. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is getting us uh, slightly far afield, but I think uh, people might be interested in this. Uh, you know, there's still I think isn't there even an old believer community or two still up in Alaska? Um, there's some in there is some in Pennsylvania actually in uh, in Erie. Okay. Um, it just occurs to me that, you know, if people are kind of that on their own without much of a hierarchy, how, how, like, if you went to an old believer service now, whether it's, you know, in Russia or in Pennsylvania or wherever, how, like, how consistently have practices stayed the same, you know, over such a long period of time, or have they, or have they uh, you know, evolved quite a bit since then? Oh, of course. I mean, um, old believer communities often, uh, at least the ones sort of outside in the in the countryside often isolated themselves from um, what they regarded as the fallen world. They didn't take much for them to believe other old believers could be fallen as well, which meant that um, they were quite isolated and often liturgical traditions, social traditions, uh, social behaviors often evolved quite a lot over time, which meant it was quite difficult when um, the old believers finally sort of got the... Um, capacity in the early 20th century to try and sort of publicly unite it was very difficult to introduce any unity between the old believer confessions uh if you like the old believer denominations um because there was so much uh diversity in how the right was being uh, right was being performed and of course when it came down to deciding well what was and what wasn't um the true um ritual of a true custom where there was a great deal of uh, problems about formulating you know the correct blueprint which old text which pre-schismatic pre-schism text should be used um, in what edition and so on and so forth so absolutely there has been um, 
a great deal of divergence within old belief in terms of what is regarded as being correct and what is not. Um, and that has only been added to by the experience of the uh, Soviet era, when the old believers were heavily persecuted under Stalin um, and led to, in many ways, the destruction of, some, uh, of, the, of the generational transmission of some of their... Uh, some of their practices, which have meant they've had to be almost reinvented in modern Russia, in post-Soviet Russia. So uh, kind of uh, winding our way back to the central thread here then, uh, I, I guess I would be correct then in assuming that uh, it's, it's largely the priestly old believers uh, who join Yadinaveria, right? Um, this is an interesting question because there's no real clarity on this question. Uh, on this matter, um, some in some on some occasions it does seem that um, basically it varies. It varies very much locally. Um, in some cases, the um, there were more old uh, priestly old believers who joined, but in other cases it was more priestly. And the Orthodox Church never seems to have been to have particularly targeted one group over the other. I mean, just to speak a bit more about this, I mean, possibly the most famous Yedinaveritz of the 19th century was a uh, convert monk called Pavel Prusky, so-called because he uh, came, he ran a uh, old believe, a priestless old believer monastery in Prussia. Um, he, in he, yes, absolutely, he was priestless, and he certainly uh, drew up his appeals to members of the priestless community. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, one would have thought that uh, if you if you regarded uh, the the Church of the Era as the Antichrist and didn't need and didn't need priests at all, that you wouldn't find any people from that point of view joining the uh, you know Yadinaveria Church. But uh, huh, that is interesting. Well, if I can just comment, um, yeah, one of the one of the um, supposed major laws of Yadinaveria is it's saying to the old believers, look, we have now a priesthood who can use the uh, old ritual perfectly legally, perfectly within the church. Uh, and now you can have the priest, a proper priesthood back. And this was the idea. This was the uh, idea of saying to them, to the priestless, you've, you know, you know, you yourselves must know, must realize that the uh, gospels say a priesthood is necessary, that you need a priesthood. Clearly we are not the church, of, uh, we are not the antichrist. Um, and we can offer you this priesthood who will, performed by the uh, rituals that you love so much and you know you'll be able to have a priest who will perform by those rituals and you'll be able to use the pre schism uh, the pre schism books that you adore so much all within the all legalized all fine so this was the basic idea behind why Yidinavir would be able to reach out not only to the priestly old believers but also to the priestless so would it be accurate to kind of sum up at this point by saying that the Orthodox hierarchy predominantly views it as a way uh, to get old believers to quit being old believers, whereas old believers look at it as a way to keep right on being old believers? That's precisely it. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is the conclusion that, well, at the, even at the time, when the, um, but throughout the century, which... Um, most of the Orthodox hierarchy started to realize is that really, you know, many of these people were there because this is essentially legal old belief. This is a form of legalized old belief. Um, and they were, and it became rapidly obvious that Platon's hope that they were going to give up this old ritual eventually 
um, obviously uh, never came to uh, never really came to pass. So um, yeah, so basically there is this constant clash of views between what is the purpose of Yudhinaviriya for these old believer converts. It is precisely an e- uh, sort of way of continuing to practice the old rites illegally. For the orthodox hierarchy, it really is a missionary weapon first and foremost for most of the, for most of the uh, period of its uh, the time of its existence. But I think maybe now uh, what might be most useful is to kind of look at this phenomenon in some successive historical eras. It looked to me like uh, uh, there was, you know, quite a bit of persecution of old believers and so on during the reign of Nicholas I uh, between 1825 and 1855. I think you could talk a bit about what happens in this kind of uh, three-way relationship during that period. Yeah, sure. Um Absolutely. Well, Nicholas I basically launches a um, a persecution against the old believers, um, which really sort of um, reaches an intensive scale in the 1840s uh, and 1850s, impartially in response to developments within the world of old belief. Um, In the uh, in the in 1846, the some of the priestly old believers are able to finally find an orthodox uh, hierarch, a, a rogue Greek metropolitan, uh, who will basically ordain priests for them, and not only that, but make bishops. So basically they create an old believer hierarchy, an old believer episcopal hierarchy, which subsequently became known as the Bella Prinitsa hierarchy, after the place where the uh, ordination of the bishops took place, or more pejoratively as the uh, Austrian uh, uh, denomination because the uh, the ceremony took place within the territory of the Austrian Empire within Roman within and uh, within Romania in fact. Um, so this was one of the main reasons where Nicholas the first really ramps up what was already a fair amount of suspicion and attempts to sort of uh, attack or belief and really Nicholas set uh, Nicholas the first goes um, um, he seizes. Uh, old believer churches. He seals them. He t- takes the prop takes property away. He closes some of the major um, centers of old belief. Um, for instance, uh, the uh, Lugoskaya Cemetery in Moscow had its uh, altars sealed, so they could no longer be used. Um, in many ca- in the case of the priestless Vik uh, Monastery in the north, one of the centers of old believer, a priestless old believer culture that was absolutely de- that was seized and destroyed, mostly burnt down. Uh, many old believer priests were arrested and threatened with exile. Um, many old believer leaders among the merchant community uh, were threatened with um, losing their status as merchants. And basically what then the government did was say, well, if you won't join orthodoxy, then maybe you'll join Yedinaviria as the alternative, as the alternative to losing your property, as the alternative to having your churches all closed, um, as the as the alternative to having your priest exiled and sent away, so here we see what happens is as all belief as the persecution against against all believer intensifies, um, more and more of them convert to Yidinaviria, and Yidinaviria reaches an unparalleled size because of this uh, because of the persecution. Basically, um, it never grows as much as it does during uh, as it as it did uh, as it did during the reign of Nicholas the First. 
So, so at that level, then I guess it'd be appropriate to see the, the persecution of the old believers as really kind of an extension of the Russification program and the official nationality policy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for Nicholas, um, loyalty was defined as being a member of the official Orthodox Church. And these, are, you know, of course, part of the, uh, the official nationality policy was precisely this focus on the primacy of orthodoxy. Of membership within the church and for nicholas the sheer fact that these uh, all believers existed outside the church uh, was a, a symbol of disloyalty not a, uh, both to himself so therefore to autocracy but a betrayal of russian uh, nationhood of norodnost and this of course was confirmed by the fact in at least in nicholas the first's view uh, when the um, all believers got their episcopal hierarchy they did so on the territory of the uh, Austrian Empire right. and with some degree of the Austrian uh, government's connivance. So I suppose you could say that continuing to be an old believer uh, offended all three wings of the official nationality policy. <laughs> absolutely, yes, absolutely. Huh. Yeah, I, this is a, t- a total aside, but I've always been, uh, I, I can never repress a chuckle when I recall that Nicholas's official nationality policy was originally drafted in French. I mean, that's just, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't run across that little tidbit until four or five years ago, and, and uh, you know, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, could you uh, could you talk a bit about uh, what you called the uh, the circular epistle episode in your book? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, when Alexander II uh, takes over in 1855, the pace of Nicholas's to- uh, persecution is almost immediately sort of drawn back, and steps begin to be taken slowly but surely to sort of extend some kind of tolerate some or some kind of toleration to the old believers. Um, there's a foundation of a committee which eventually produces two key, key pieces of legislation. One in the 1870s, which allows the old believers to keep their own metrical books. So in other words, to allow the old believers to keep their own records of their births, marriages and deaths. This is a really big step because it basically legalize, it legalizes, legitimizes all believer marriage, which Nicholas I had banned in the early 1830s. He had delegitimized all believer marriages and therefore threatened sort of uh, inheritance, inheritance, inheritances and so on and so forth. And the other major step came shortly uh, two years after the assassination of uh, Alexander II in 1883, when a law was passed which basically allowed the old believers to have, once again, sort of have public buildings of worship. They couldn't be advertised as public buildings of worship, but they could have their chapels, their churches, so long as they didn't, they were the services were conducted inside, and they weren't obviously modelled after orthodox churches. Now, in response to this more sort of tolerant approach, the uh, this uh, the priestly the priestly old believer hierarchy, the Episcopal hierarchy, tries also to adopt a more um, conciliatory uh, conciliatory approach to the government sort of back away from some of the uh, supposed extremities of their belief. And one of the results of this was the this so-called circular epistle, which was distributed from the uh, all-believer hierarchs in Moscow, from one of their councils, among their believers, which said, well, look, we don't believe the Orthodox Church really is the Antichrist. We don't believe the Russian state is the Antichrist. And they basically said, oh, okay, this is, uh, 
you know, in many ways, in most ways, the Orthodox Church believes in the same God as we do. They confess to the uh, they confess to the same Jesus Christ. Um, their sacraments have the same life giving uh, force, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but this caused a split among the uh, among the uh, Episcopal hierarchy. So basically, you had one side becoming the um, uh, were in favor of the letter. This was the biggest side. They most they managed to retain most of the uh, bishops, most of the monasteries, most of the merchanthood. But there was also quite a, a large section who rejected the letter. Who said we can't uh, go back on this sort of um, opinion of the Orthodox Church that it is of the Antichrist or is a servant of the Antichrist or some sort of variation of that opinion. And so this split between the um, the only recently created hierarchy, Episcopal hierarchy lasts basically until the end of the empire. Um, and it has numerous consequences for sort of uh, how the uh, the Russian Orthodox treat, Church treats it in Iveria in the 1860s and 1870s. I thought it was interesting that um, that it's it's kind of the late era of Alexander II where, where all of this toleration emerges since... I mean, in the, um, I mean, normally, you know, Alexander II's reign is, you know, kind of seen as the liberal phase as being before the Karakazov's assassination attempt in 1866, whereas the latter part of his reign is seen as a little more, <coughs> excuse me, um, a little more reactionary. So it's interesting that as far as the old believer schism goes, it's really in the latter part of his reign when there's more toleration. That's kind of a, I don't know, a, uh, an exception to what seems to be kind of the general evaluation of his reign. Um, sure, I would, uh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. I mean, part of the reason is simply the um, the legislative uh, committee in charge of sort of extending rights to the old believers, but also dealing more broadly with issues of religious toleration to other groups, particularly. Um, the issue of what to do with the um, the situation in the Baltic states, where in the Baltic provinces, where large number of Lutherans had converted to Orthodoxy in the eighteen forties, and many of them were trying to sort of drift back to Lutheranism in the eighteen sixties. All these issues were combined together, and it really took um, uh, Pyotr Vaulyev in particular a long time to uh, sort of um, untwine these issues and get them through the sort of various political opposition. Uh, opposition to these moves and it should be noted that the you know the russian orthodox church was mostly an opponent it, it, correct me if i'm wrong but it, it it looked to me like from from reading your book that maybe by the you know the middle of the 1880s it looked like at least legally speaking uh orthodoxy and yadina feria were, were more or less co-equal is that is that right um de facto yes de facto yes basically by the uh, 1880s the russian orthodox church partially in response to these liberal measures of the state, had decided to try and integrate the uh, Yidinaviria more solidly within the confessions, so to bring down these various blockades between the two groups. So they started to say, for instance, well, you can go to uh, a Yidinaviria priest for the, um, for the sacraments if you want to, for instance. And they also began to say, well, they, be they introduced... Um, a time period. So um, if you were Orthodox, you could convert to Yidinaviria if you hadn't been to a sacrament at first in 10 and then within five years. So they were trying to bring down this sort of, these sort of barriers between the two. 
And indeed, in 1886, they, they passed a secret edict which said to the bishops uh, throughout the empire that if someone applies to join from Orthodox CTA in Nivea, you should just let them. But the problem, of course, is this was a secret edict and many consistories, in fact, ignored it. Um, <laughs> they, essentially because it gave the uh, bishops and consistories discretion. Uh, there wasn't really uh, in the matter. And many bishops and sisters continue to have a very suspicious or uh, low view of Yedinivaria. But certainly on an official level, on a synodal level, there was the idea of trying to bring, integrate Yedinivaria into orthodoxy therefore, and therefore respond to the liberal measures of the state to so basically stop uh, to answer some of the criticisms of Yedinivaria's position that had emerged from both within Yedinivaria and from within old belief. And, there, and by doing so, counteracting any sort of um, waves of people going back to our belief. Now it was now it had a better position, basically. I was I was laughing because I was imagining somebody who, uh, you know, would want to convert to the Indian area, but if the edict is secret, they wouldn't know that that was allowed. <laughs> oh, absolutely yes. But I mean, it was um, for many for many people. The um, you find that they define you find that they defined um, how they believed what their identity was, was very much by ritual behavior, not by the sort of um, whether they were put into one metrical book or another, whether they were listed as orthodox officially, rather they defined themselves as being um, old believer because they used the old believer rituals. And therefore they said, well, I want to, um, I def- I'm an old believer, therefore I should be allowed to join Yidinaviria. Where, of course, the consistory holding very close to the letter of the law would say, well, in fact, you took confession three years ago, so you're orthodox. So you oh, can't okay. join yet in Iberia. Kind of while we're, we're roughly uh, muddling around in the latter 19th century here, you, you, uh, you discussed something in the book that I found kind of interesting when you linked um, old belief with the kind of emerging nationalism of the, uh, the latter 19th century. So what I, what I was wondering is, uh, can we kind of see old belief then as a kind of uh, late game Slavophilism in the, in the latter 19th century? Does that, you know, does that become linked up with the idea of, uh, you know, Russianness and so on that, that goes back to the Slavophilism of the 1840s? Um, absolutely. And if you look in the 1840s, even there were numerous both uh, Slavophiles and future Slavophiles who were involved in some way with the government's uh, investigations into old belief. Um, for many of them, they did, what they thought they discovered uh, was a group of people who had. Uh, you know, because they had broken away from the Russian church and the Russian state in the 17th century, so before the westernizing reforms of Peter the Great. Um, these people were, you know, a unique treasure trove of uncontaminated Russianness, uncontaminated Russian values. And maybe by, um, uh, by firstly, by giving them greater toleration, but also by sort of trying to co-opt them these kind of values could be restored to the Russian state of than the Russian society of the late 19th century. I mean, absolutely, they do start to be viewed for very much through a Slavophile lens. So, so in that context, then, when, when people look at it, old believers in the way you've just described, when they look at Yudinovaria uh, uh, parishes, like, do they see those people as kind of nationally suspicious characters? Um, no, for many, in fact, Yudinovaria becomes a kind of... Um, 
how would you say um, a much more acceptable way of putting this? Because of course the okay. Yiddin Vertsi were already, you know, they were people who preserved this, you know, ancient ritual compact, etc. They preserved this all believer identity, but were doing so within um, full and legal union and legal in both in both senses of uh, legislative legality and canonical church legality. So these were people who could potentially be um, a very good a, a vehicle for um, a vehicle for bringing this these Russian values back into into the sort of uh, into modern into modern or late nineteenth century early twentieth century Russian society. Certainly, that's how many uh, Yudinovertsi viewed the question. Hmm, that's interesting. It just it occurred to me that you know if we uh, uh, that. that... The, the linkage between you know, old belief and, and nationalism might present some problems, but that's interesting that that was the tack that they, they took. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think uh, moving ahead here again in, in time, could you talk a bit then about the uh, general effects of the 1905 Edict of Toleration? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, basically, of course, well, in, in, in the 1905 Toleration Edict, uh, the old believers were given most of the rights of the other Christian confessions. So basically, they jumped up from being semi-legal or kind of legal up to being fully legalized. So they received all the same rights as the Lutherans had, for instance, the Catholics, the Armenian Gregorians, etc. Um, so now all belief is now a fully legalized uh, um, religious group. Um, so what the Orthodox Church expects is going to happen and what does happen in at least some dioceses, uh, dioceses is that um, many of the uh, universities start to convert back to the um, to old belief. So return to, you, uh, return to old belief. And of course, one of the major provisions I should have mentioned of the Toleration Edict was it essentially abolished the law prohibiting apostasy. So now, they could, so now the uh, university could freely go back to old belief without worry of being uh, subject to criminal prosecution. Um, and this causes other, it has many other consequences for the Edinavertsi as well. Um, one instance is financial and material. So one engine of Edinavertsi's financial position throughout the 19th century was their typography, their publishing house in Moscow. Because old believers weren't allowed to have their own books they could only buy them from the typography. Well, the, um, this meant that basically the um, typography did really big business while all believer, the old believer press was censored, while all believers were prohibited from owning their own uh, the books that they'd manufactured or produced themselves. With the Edict of Toleration all believe, and the October Manifesto, um, all believer publishing becomes very legal. The bottom falls out of the uh, printing press's model which means one of the major sources of donations for church construction suddenly goes away. Uh, suddenly goes away, and there's a real crisis by about 1910 about of the university saying, "How are we going to fund our schools? How are we going to fund our churches, our charitable institutions without this typography generating income from the formerly persecuted or believers?" Um, another angle to look at is, in fact, this angle of seized property, property which had been seized from the old believers in the 19th century. And it had been given to uh, the university uh, afterwards. Um, the old believers now start to try and get some of it back. Uh, the government actually goes to some some small steps to try and make that happen. Many university are very concerned 
about um, their property being taken, their what's they now view as their property being taken away and given to um, their people they view um, often as their religious or community enemies. And there, of course, and, no, and possibly the most major consequence is, it ta- is there's a real evaluation of the role of, of Yedinaviria, it's raison d'etre. Why does Yedinaviria exist? Does it exist as a missionary weapon against the old belief? Or is it something else? Is it a way perhaps of creating a bridge for reconciliation between the uh, Orthodox Church and the old believers? So basically the crisis of confronting a fully legalized old belief makes many try uh, start to question about redefining the purpose of Yedinaviria for the uh, for modern, uh, for late Tsarist Russia, for late Imperial Russia. So, uh, could you uh, could you talk for a bit then uh, about the revolutionary era? You know, how does that how does that affect our sense of of uh, or uh, the purpose of, of this third way in between? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, after nineteen oh five. This way had been championed this sort of new vision of Yedinaviria, this re- vision of Yedinaviria as a means of reconciling with all belief, a, a grounds for mutual reconciliation between all belief and orthodoxy, and also as a vehicle to restore true Russian, to, true 17th century Russian piety to the Orthodox Church, had been championed by a group of reformers based, uh, centered around the uh, St. Petersburg priest. Father Simeon Shliov, who had led this very intensive campaign uh, to try and get these reforms passed for Yedinaviria, to try and abolish, essentially abolish the rules of Platon, for instance, and create a new series of rules. Now, he was met, uh, he was opposed very strongly uh, between 1905 and 1912 by the members of the Orthodox missionary movement, who held, in fact, no, there's no need to redefine the purpose of Yedinaviria. It's, you know, it's a missionary tool. That's its main goal. That's its main aim. Everything else secondary to that aim. There was some common ground between the two groups, but uh, personal differences and polemical and uh, polemical battles basically hardened the positions into almost two irreconcilable camps. Now, in 1912, Schlov lost most of his supporters within the episcopate, because partially as a consequence of the rise of Rasputin and the removal of some of his uh, key supporters or the discrediting of his key supporters by Rasputin. In 1917, of course, the imperial regime is washed away. There is no more uh, fear of talking out and Shilov launches a huge uh, huge scheme to try and pass his vision of Yedinaviria into law at the 1917-1918 Church Council. But he's very much strongly met in opposition by the uh, by the leaders of the missionary group who regard Shlov's plan as almost transforming um, Yedinaviria into um, a new schismatic movement within the church. Almost uh, they view they view Shlov and his party as being quasi old believers or crypto old believers, and this scheme as being um, emblematic of it. Uh, one thing they view view particularly uh, harshly is the fact that Shlov pr- proposes a name change. For Yedinaviria, he proposes to call it Orthodox Old Belief. And the missionary movement detests the idea that these people could be identified in any kind of way as old believers. Um, they meet, they clash in the mission in the uh, church council. 
And basically what comes about in 1918 is the council tries to go for a middle ground uh, between the two groups. So, for instance, one of the things that Shliov really wanted was his own was Yedinivirya bishops. There had never been a Yedinivirya bishop before. There had been one or two attempts to create one in the 19th century, but nothing ever came of it. Um, this was strongly opposed by the missionary movement, who thought, well, maybe these Yedinivirya bishops would just run off to old belief and give them a fully legitimate hierarchy. So what the council did was say, okay, what we'll do is we'll give you um, suffragan bishops, Yedinivirya suffragan bishops. So these are bishops who are deputies of the diocesan bishop. They don't have the full powers of a bishop and they're of a full bishop and they're kept under the supervision of an orthodox bishop. So in some ways, what you see coming out of the council is although they make many changes to the structure of Yedinivirya, they finally abolish, for instance, the rules of Platon and create a new settlement many ways, this dynamic between attempts to incorporate the university while also keeping them arm's length because of suspicion is still incorporated into the new set of rules. So, um, so I was, we got time for a couple of more uh, uh, thoughts here. Sure. I was, I was kind of stepping back from your book and, and thinking about the, the big picture here. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that occurred to me, you know, is there's the old, uh, I think it's often called the state school of Russian historiography, which tends to take the point of view that on any given subject in Russian history, it's really the role of the state that's the one that's really definitive or that really matters. And it occurred to me as I was reading your book that there's kind of a bit of a backhanded support for that argument here. And it seems like throughout the whole history of uh, yet in area that it's, it's really the state initiatives that seem to, uh, uh, you know, not only create the thing to begin with, but to dictate uh, what really what really happens. Am I overreading what you've said in here? Or do you think that has some plausibility? Uh, no, I think, there's, I think there's a degree of truth to that. I think especially in the early period, so really sort of running, well, I say early period, I probably mean up until about, up until about uh, the end of the 19th century is the state is intensely interested in this sort of Yedinivirya project. You have Paul the, Paul the First who creates it, Nicholas the First who absolutely sort of uses it as a missionary tool. Um, then you have uh, under Alexander the Third and Pope, uh, you have Pope Edenosev as the uh, procurator of the Synod, and he was intensively interested in the Yedinivirya project. And really, these were the actors who were giving, I think, a lot of the time steam to it, pushing for reforms, pushing for change. Because basically, as far as I can see, is the Orthodox Church was almost consistently, up until about the uh, beginning of the 20th century, consistently suspicious of the Edinavirio, never really wanted the project to begin with, and remained circumspect about its value, about what it brought into the church. And in many ways, their policies always seem to remain reactive, not only reactive to what the state did, but also what happened in the world of the old believers. Um, so, yeah, I would say that I, I think really what changes in by 1905 is the uh, most of the state has lost interest with the legalization of old belief. The state loses any kind of interest it has in the movements and there's no real sign anymore of um, state intervention in its affairs. Certainly they partake in key ceremonies and so on and so forth. Um, such as the Yedinivir Congress held in St. Petersburg in 1912. There are state actors present, but very much this is sort of the um, 
the idea of presenting a sort of a vision of unity between the state and the Orthodox Church rather than the state showing any kind of uh, interest anymore in Yedinavir itself. The, the other thing I was I was thinking about was, uh, you know, lots of people, you know, this is your book is going to be brand new territory. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was thinking about um, obviously, however, religious schism is is uh, not a rare phenomenon. And so I was I was envisioning, OK, so what what kinds of people you know might be interested in in reading your book, maybe for some insights into the dynamics of other kinds of religious schisms? Uh, one that one that occurred to me, for instance, might be the uh the status of Latin Rite Catholics after the Second Vatican Council in the '60s, uh, having kind of a tenuous status. So I guess what I'm asking here is, like, who who else might be kind of likely interested in in, in reading your book uh, in light of other religious schisms? Are there other schisms where? People interested in those might benefit from reading what what you've written here about the the, the Orthodox schism. Uh, sure. I think firstly, I think um, one uh, issue I think Yidinavilia, the history of Yidinavilia, really highlights is the um, is the way ritual is important in both perpetuating and sometimes uh, perpetuating religious schism. Um, and well, perpetuating new, uh, perpetuating uh, diverse forms of religious identity. And I think I drew a lot, um, conceptually speaking, from studies uh, done on the uh, Reformation in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, looking how how um, how how ritual is used as a marker of confessional distinction, how it's sometimes used to exacerbate. Um, religious tensions, religious conflicts, but also an occasion how people uh, draw away from emphasizing the importance of ritual as a way of trying to create common ground. So there are parallels definitely with what you see within Russian Orthodoxy from the seventeenth from the mid-17th century, uh, all the way through with the case of Yedinavirya to 1917, and what had gone on earlier and in some ways continued to go on in Europe from the Reformation. Um, I think there are also some other groups. I mean, you mentioned uh, Catholics. Well, of course, the Catholic Church has its own uh, issues of uh, liturgical diversity in the form of the Greek Rite Catholics and the Latin Rite Catholics. And many of the lessons you can sort of uh, regain from a study of Yedinavirya have their reflections in the history of the, uh, the way the Eastern Rite Church is treated within Catholicism. And of course, stretching a bit more, you might also lean to sort of saying, well, which other churches have had difficulties um, uh, with divides over questions of rituals? Uh, and one, of course, um, that might emerge for an English-speaking audience, for an English-speaking readership, is the uh, experience of the Anglican Church, which, of course, has always tried to have, to have a balance between the high church and low church, between uh, a quite Catholic liturgical settlement and a quite Protestant liturgical settlement. And I think there are some quite interesting uh, um, parallels, comparisons, distinctions to be drawn from putting Yidinavirya and its experience with the Orthodox Church and the uh, Anglican Church's attempts to deal with uh, its two liturgical uh, traditions. There's a good deal of uh, that can be drawn from putting these two things side by side. 
I thought of the Anglican uh, uh, analogy there myself when I was when I was finishing up reading reading your book. That is a, an interesting one uh, to to me as well. Uh, well, I think we're we're about out of time here. So uh, thank you very much for uh, really enlightening me. Certainly, this was something that I I really knew nothing about before I tackled your book. So thank you for a very interesting read and clarifying a few issues for me here in the course of our chat. No, thank you very much for having me. It was a uh, and thank you very much for your interesting questions. It was a delight. <laughs>